local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a packed Woodford show for you this morning to get your short work week going. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, freedom of information concerns and a situation BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner calls absurd. We'll hear from Michael McAvoy in a little bit. We'll also uh, get the lowdown and uh, smart shirts as opposed to smartphones in just a little bit. But first, uh, we usually talk to her on Monday, but uh, today is Tuesday, essentially a Monday of this short work week. Uh, real pleasure to welcome to the program from Acumen Law, Kyla Lee. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you, Shane. How are you? I am well. Um, listen, Bill Blair, who is uh, uh, sort of the minister responsible for uh, drug-impaired enforcement and all a bunch of other sort of uh, criminal stuff uh, in the federal ministry, is in Vancouver this morning. He's going to make an announcement at uh, Vancouver Police Headquarters. The announcement is what we know so far. Uh, he's going to make, quote, a funding announcement to the province of British Columbia to counter drug-impaired driving. Now, we don't know what he's going to announce, but we do know... There's lots of kerfuffle around the Drager drug test 5000. Most police aren't using it. The Sotoxa device uh, hasn't quite been greenlit yet. And we have, you know, these new drug impaired driving laws and this new, you know, legal cannabis regime. Um, any anticipation of what might be coming down the pipe this morning? I expect that we're going to see money being given to police forces in British Columbia to purchase technology to deal with the problem of drug-impaired driving and to train more officers. British Columbia has really been lagging behind um, other provinces in terms of actually acquiring uh, the devices like the Drager. We don't have any police forces here that are actually using it um, and in doing any real enforcement of drug-impaired driving. And I think the federal government doesn't like seeing that. Uh, and I think they're trying to encourage police in BC to put more time and effort um, and give them the money necessary to investigate, to train, and to arm their officers with the tools necessary uh, to enforce the provisions of the criminal code. Now, you and I have uh, talked at length about the, the failures and the uh, concerns around the Drager Drug Test 5000. There are also concerns around this Sotoxa device. Now, if they throw a bunch of money at police departments and, and they get them over the hump and say, okay, we're going to go out and buy these things, we're going to now use them out on the street, uh, does that open up a whole other can of worms or no? I, I think it does. Um, I, I mean, obviously, we've got uh, we've got police forces that are resistant to using these devices because of the concerns that you and I have discussed. Um, and you have the federal government basically incentivizing them to to put their concerns aside and and giving them money to try and do something that doesn't seem to morally sit right with the police forces. And I do think that that's troubling. I think that our federal government should be respecting the autonomy of individual police agencies to make decisions about what's right for them and decisions about what's right for the safety of the individual communities that they police. You know, the Vancouver Police Department, for example, knows Vancouver better than Bill Blair. But that said, there's a lot of communities in this province that are policed by the RCMP, which isn't, I mean, it's a local force in, in some sense of the word, but it's also nationally driven. They don't make decisions largely when it comes to especially things like this that aren't mandated by Ottawa. That's true. Um, but again, you have officers on the ground who know what the specific concerns are in that community as far as safety and the need to allocate police resources. 
Um, and the more far removed you are from the actual community itself, the less aware you are of, of the concerns in that community. I think in British Columbia we've been really set apart from the rest of Canada when it's come to cannabis because of the way that we've, as a province, treated the regulation of, of dispensaries. Um, we haven't seen, you know, like they did in Ontario and Toronto, raids of dispensaries prior to legalization. We were allowing them to operate in a gray sphere in many places in BC, Nelson, um, Vancouver, Victoria are good examples of that. Um, and and it, I think it was uh, as a result of the police recognizing what the needs and responsibilities of the community were and responding appropriately to that. And I don't think that paying the police to look, uh, look the other way with respect to a community's needs is going to lead to good results in policing. So I guess the final question on this, I mean, you primarily deal in breathalyzer challenges and you've, uh, you've been well documented, some of the stuff you've found there. Uh, to uh, the degree that you and I have talked so far, there has not been sort of a floodgate of marijuana impaired drivers coming into your office and saying, oh my God, uh, if we start using these devices in numbers in various police detachments across the province, do you anticipate that that side of the business will pick up or no? I do think that that side uh, will pick up. I mean, obviously, the more enforcement there is of any law, the more likely it is that people are going to be charged under that law. Um, but I also think that our courts in British Columbia, because our courts here have as, as well recognized the needs of the community, aren't going to take kindly um, to you know what may be financial bullying from the federal government into enforcing a law. Um, and we may see the litigation in that area work more in favor of uh, of the drivers than in favor of the police um, and uh, the equipment that they're using. Um, so it may actually make British Columbia really fertile ground for successful constitutional challenges to these laws. Interesting. Uh, still on cannabis, we had an interesting situation play out in the other coast. A gentleman uh, whose name is Patrick Whalen, uh, he applied for a job in Halifax, understand the local water treatment plant. Uh, as part of the interview process, suddenly they sprung a drug test on him. Uh, he tested positive for cannabis, and uh, the job offer was promptly withdrawn. The company saying, listen, what we do here is dangerous. Uh, we can't have somebody who could possibly be drug impaired on our workplace. Uh, is this sort of legally problematic ground or no? It is legally problematic. There are real concerns about testing somebody prior to the start of their employment for past cannabis use. Because whatever you did before you started your employment, if you're not going to continue doing it while you're in the employment, it shouldn't be an issue. Um, further, collecting that type of personal information about a person, a, a urine sample or a blood sample or, or some type of DNA-based sample, um, raises huge privacy concerns. There are already rules uh, restricting what information uh, potential employers are allowed to collect in the hiring process and how employers are supposed to treat that information. And if you're adding into that a layer of collecting actual bodily samples and then discriminating potentially in the hiring process on the basis of those bodily samples, the employer faces significant liability if they rescind a job offer on the basis of the tests that are done. Can, can you not make a legal case for an employer to say, hey, listen, we do have a certain set of rules here. We've mandated zero cannabis use, or, or maybe they make the, the dangerous argument, you know, listen, we, we work in a high-risk environment. There's, there's dangers here. We don't want somebody whose judgment is even mildly impaired. Can they not make that case in hiring their own employees or no? 
They can make that case in hiring their own employees, but they have to be careful not to discriminate. Lots of people who use cannabis have used it either recreationally, legally, or who use it for medical applications. And they shouldn't be discriminated in the hiring process as long as they're willing to comply with the requirements for the job once they start working. And the problem with, you know, cannabis drug testing is that you're testing for past use. You're not testing for present impairment. And you can have THC concentrations detectable in urine samples, you know, up to uh, 30 days after somebody's used cannabis, which can lead to a concern that if somebody took, uh, took a product at one point in time to deal with a specific acute medical issue that's since been resolved, they're being discriminated on the basis of a medical condition in the hiring process in a way that wouldn't have any potential future impact on their employment. Uh, another cannabis-related note, uh, and it's sort of linked to, to this line of questioning here, is the, uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Magazine, or the Canadian, yeah, the Canadian Occupational Safety Magazine, is working on setting sort of a, a workplace standard for marijuana impairment, I guess sort of a, a way to say, okay, you're good here, not good there, but a standard across workplaces. So what do you think about that? I think that they're going to have a very tough time doing that. It's been difficult enough for police forces and the government to define impairment by cannabis in the ability to drive and to identify what that is. I don't see how a workplace is going to or a workplace standard is going to overcome any of those hurdles. Uh, the reality is that uh, unlike alcohol, cannabis affects people differently based on your tolerance level, based on the manner in which you ingest it, um, and based on whether or not you have underlying medical conditions and your own brain chemistry. And so creating a standard when it doesn't affect people in a standard way uh, risks running into a situation where, again, that workplace standard is going to discriminate against people on the basis of immutable characteristics. Again, though, isn't it, isn't it good to have some kind of standards in the workplace? I mean, it is legal now. People are going to be using it. You could make the, you could make the judgment, okay, the, someone, the, their response or their judgment might be somewhat altered or slowed because of the drug. Po I don't know. There's a whole bunch of arguments you can make from an employer side of things. Would it not be good to have some kind of sort of baseline here or no? Well, I think as long as the baseline is one that's grounded in common sense, for example, you know, like you said, if your judgment or your ability to perform your job safely is compromised by the consumption of a legal substance that has impairing effects on some people when consumed in certain ways, um, then, you know, yes. But the standard that they're trying to set is one that's, uh, I think, more specific than that um, and one that's going to lead to a lot of difficulty um, because of the many ways that can cannabis is used not just recreationally but also medically. Remember, we don't use alcohol, the other legal impairing substance, as a medical application. Nobody's prescribed, you know, a six-pack a week. Um, and so we haven't really seen this situation before in our legal system or in our employment law um, where people are being asked to uh, adhere to a certain safety standard when they may actually less adhere to that safety standard as a result of a medical condition if they don't consume the substance. Kyla, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time. Thank you for having me. And that was Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, you've heard of smartphones. What about smart shirts? RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com.
Good morning. Welcome back. Well, we're all, uh, most of us anyway, carry around smartphones in our pocket. Megan, there's smart just about everything these days. Well, researchers at UBC Okanagan have developed uh, a sensor that can essentially be interlaced or woven into various textiles and different materials uh, and significantly raising the idea of smart clothing. A real pleasure to welcome to the program to discuss this. UBC doctoral student Hussein Montazarian. Good morning, Hussein. How are you? Hi, Sam. I'm fine. How are you? I am good, thank you. So tell me a little bit about this. You guys have, uh, have created a, a low-cost sensor that you can weave into clothing fabric, uh, essentially allowing us to wear uh, quote-unquote sort of smart shirts or smart pants or, or what have you. Uh, what's the application of these sensors? Like, what can they do and what's sort of the, the spectrum of use out there? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, if I want to tell a little bit about that, about the way the sensors work, uh, normally, you have a conductive material. Then, if you if you apply any deformation, then that uh, gives you a signal in terms of changing resistance. So the idea is that we we uh, we are trying to use the same concept and bring it into the textile industry. So we're thinking, why not we uh, use the yarns that make the textiles uh, and use them as a sensor element? So Basically, we coat them with these uh, carbon-based nanoparticles to make them conductive, and then the moment you weave it into your garment and textile, uh, then you can have this electrical conductivity that can uh, basically transmit it to your cell phone or laptop um, and, and really monitor any changes in, the, in, the, uh, in your body that you have, like any movements, uh, any, uh, like, uh, for example, if, if you want to uh, monitor somebody from the remote distance, if in terms of signal wise, uh, sorry, vital signs, and if, if you, uh, for example, sometimes you, uh, you want to have this uh, uh, information sent to the doctors for the physicians to uh, monitor the patients over time. So uh, basically, some of the applications include these uh, medical applications and uh, as well as the industries such as aerospace, uh, they are going to use these uh, for monitoring the fabrication process for uh, the, the devices and for the machines like uh, airplane uh, parts. Now, interesting. I assume it would have a lot of application among athletics as well. If it can monitor heart rate and body temperature, I don't know if it can go as far as you know telling an athlete to slow down or when they should drink a, a glass of water or not. But uh, is there a lot of possible application there or no? That's exactly right. One of the basically the main applications because these sensors are really robust in terms of uh, monitoring the. Uh, big information that you may have, like when, when the athlete wants to say, wants to uh, basically know how, how how much calories they have spent, how much uh, movement they have had during their exercise. So these are the information that they can transmit through the uh, through the circuit to their cell phone too. Interesting. So you guys have figured all of this out. Uh, what sort of stands between us? Mm -hmm. Uh, and seeing your your uh, your department's research turned into something that could show up at the at the local store. I mean, what's sort of between us and actually having this stuff out there? Exactly. Actually, uh, we've been working uh, with the, uh, the leading companies 
so we are trying to push this toward the market by uh, by basically further modifying and, and improving the material. Uh, the, the next step of the research is uh, basically now we are trying to use uh, the, the, the human body movements and, and harvest that energy from there to power our sensors. So um, we are going to remove the batteries and then from there uh, we are also working on, on starting a company that, that, that can basically push this toward the market as soon as possible. Interesting. Are there privacy concerns? Do you think people wearing these things will be will be concerned about you know the information it gathers and, and what it does with it or no? Uh, yes, actually, um, we've been thinking about the the app developments because uh, for sure there are some concerns about that as well. Um, but but it is uh, I think uh, it's it's something possible that that uh, the customers they can choose uh, how their the information is going to be shared and, and uh, this is something that for sure will be considered in the app development stage. Uh, the actually the idea that that we have is to get everyone connected and for example if the athletes are practicing. So they can know that their peers how much how, how they are doing. So um, they have a ranking system, and basically they can choose the, the level of uh, privacy that you want to have during the uh, process. For sure. Interesting. Uh, that's uh, man oh man. It's a, it's a crazy world we live in. Um, Exactly. You you talk about the the sensors themselves being low cost. If you're going to weave them in, you're going to make these smart shirts or what have you. Um, is there concerns about the cost of the, of the clothing themselves once you're done? Is this something that uh, basically somebody in the street uh, might be able to afford down the road or no? Uh, for sure, because the, the, all the materials that we are using uh, are from the fabric itself. So the only thing that we are adding to it is a sort of ink that is electrically conductive in nature. So uh, the idea is pretty simple. So uh, basically, uh, we sort of make a dispersion of these uh, fluid, uh, fluids that are electrically conductive, and then we use a deep coating. So deep coating process allows you to fabricate scalable uh, sensors. So you can uh, basically uh, make them through a scalable fabrication process, and then you dip them into the solution, and you basically dry it out. You to repeat it, uh, this process for multiple times. The same yarn that you use for that textile uh, is going to be electrically conductive, and then you can use that for uh, the monitoring all of those information. Fascinating stuff, Hasinta. Thank you for taking some time out of your morning to, to chat with us about this. Interesting. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate that. As UBC doctoral student Hussein Montazarian uh, talking to us about uh, smart clothing, essentially weaving a low-cost sensor into into clothing material and be able to feed a whole bunch of information back uh, that you could then view via an app with uh, all sorts of different applications from from medical to, to athletic. Uh, caught my, I'm just still chuckling at the thing about choosing the level of privacy for the shirt you're wearing. Anywho, uh, well, uh, speaking of privacy, we'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, uh, BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael McAvoy will join us, and he is not happy. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, interesting situation heading into the long weekend where the Minister of Citizen Services, Ginny Sims, faced a number of allegations expressed through a lawyer by a former staffer uh, saying basically or alleging that uh, the minister was using a bunch of sort of back-channel means, including social media channels, to skirt around freedom of information laws, freedom of information laws that the minister is directly in charge of. Uh, all of this resulted in the B.C.'s Information and Privacy Commissioner being alerted to this. Uh, he was sent a letter from uh, the staffer's lawyer, uh, and he looked into it and discovered uh, that he was, in, to some degree, powerless in this situation, uh, something that's left him shaking his head. We're going to dive into that right now. Welcome to the show, BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael McAvoy. Uh, Michael, you're you're aware of the allegations that have been made by a former staffer of Citizen Services Minister Ginny Sims that you've issued a, a statement today that uh, you opened the door for some latitude to act uh, should the person involved table some, some evidence uh, supporting the claim. Uh, but on the other hand, you make, a, you make an interesting point, and I don't know if I'm overreaching by saying I sense a little frustration in your statement and saying, uh, the legislation seems to require the minister investigate herself, and uh, you say that's unacceptable. Uh, what needs to be done here to address this situation? Well, you rightly sense my uh, the frustration. Um, the core of the allegation uh, against Minister Sims is that she failed to, uh, in her duty, to document government decisions. That's an issue over which I have no authority. I've asked for that authority, uh, the, and. And it, it requires, the duty to document is really important because without government recording uh, the decisions that it's making, what good is access to information law? It needs to be there so that the public can see the decisions that are being made. That requires independent oversight. This, uh, what has transpired here in the last few days, is a very good example of why. Under the existing legislation, the Information Management Act, uh, the person responsible for ensuring that duty to document is met is the minister herself, which means effectively if an allegation is made against a minister, uh, she would be in investigating herself, which I think uh, members of the public would agree is absolutely absurd. What requires uh, uh, the, the uh, legislature to do here is that they take steps to amend the legislation uh, so that uh, the Information and Privacy Commissioner is given oversight of the duty to document. Michael, is this call to amend the legislation new, or has this been made in the past? It is not. I have called for this. My office has called for this over the last few years. And uh, today is, is a Exhibit A uh, in terms of evidence as to why uh, my office needs this kind of oversight. For the public to have trust and confidence in how government is properly documenting its decisions, how it's creating records about government business, which is absolutely important. Uh, for the public to have trust and confidence uh, that that is being done properly needs to have some level of independent oversight. Do you have concerns with the allegations that are sitting in front of you uh, that involve the minister? I mean, I, I get your lack of latitude to act, but if you had the power to act and the legislation was amended, would what is in front of you be concerning enough that you might be taking steps? Well, I don't have any view as to uh, the whether these allegations are credible or not or, or uh, their validity because I don't have the authority to investigate. So I can't make a comment about that. But obviously, any time issues are raised um, about uh, how government is managing its records, 
um, how uh, uh, the use of uh, email accounts and so forth are being, whether they're being properly used or not. These are, of course, issues of generally of concern. Um, what I think the public requires is uh, some level of oversight so that they, they can be assured that uh, these met record management systems are being uh, used to, and done correctly. How tricky is it to manage in today's climate? Uh, you know, I mean, you not only have email, you have all these social media accounts and, and whatnot. Uh, some of those uh, avenues have, have surfaced in the allegations in front of you here. But uh, politicians, as you rightly note, have a duty to document uh, no matter how they're communicating. But uh, considering all the avenues that are here today that weren't necessarily here, you know, five or ten years ago, how, how difficult is it uh, to sort of police this kind of thing right now? Well, I think the new technologies certainly create more challenges uh, for government, but not just for government, even for private businesses in the way they they do their work. But in this case, we're talking uh, about government. But these are not unmanageable. And, uh, you know, they've got uh, numbers of people in place who think about these issues, who understand uh, that we are living in a different world when it comes to uh, the digital, uh, digital information. And so how that's stored, kept, used, uh, that is different than, than the paper world. Um, but government knows that, and they've taken some steps to manage um, uh, the digital world in which they're involved in. And certainly, I don't think it's unreasonable for the public to expect that they're on top of that and that they're managing um, their digital systems properly. What steps can we take, or, or what steps should be taken to better, um, I don't know if it's education side, to better inform politicians of their duty to document, no matter how they're transmitting their communications, or or conversely, maybe there's, I don't know, if you want to go as far as legislation to kind of provide guidelines with how politicians should or should not be using all of these different avenues. Well, my office has set out to pretty clear guidance on the use, for example, of personal email accounts for doing government business. Um, it is not a good practice. It is not strictly prohibited by the legislation, but it certainly is not. It's a very poor practice, in fact, because it makes it more difficult um, for searching of records and basically keeping track of records, as one uh, might imagine. So my office has been very clear in issuing that guidance. Um, government, uh, from time to time, when these kinds of issues arise, I think reiterate to, uh, to officials um, how they should be conducting uh, their business. And uh, again, today is a reminder of how they ought to be conducting business on the public's behalf. Is it uncomfortable in this particular situation to have allegations against a minister who is directly... Uh, in charge, whose jurisdiction includes the same freedom of information laws that she's, uh, that her responsibility is to sort of safeguard and, and, and shepherd to some degree? Well, I, I would describe the situation as absurd, that uh, a minister who's being accused, uh, and again, without making comment on the validity of those accusations, uh, that she should be the person who essentially is in charge of determining whether or not those allegations are proper ones is is patently absurd. Um that, that, that's not a system in which the public can have trust. That's why we need independent oversight to make sure that records are being properly created and government decisions are being properly documented. Other than, uh, you know, putting out a statement and expressing your frustration and doing things like, uh, like talking to myself about it, do you have any avenues, Michael, to kind of further uh, lobby or push for this legislative change? Well, it's twofold. Uh, first, I am... Uh, frequently talking to the minister responsible. Uh, I've talked to government officials. I was just in the legislature last week talking to the committee that I'm responsible for, talking about these very issues. Uh, Ultimately, it's the politicians that need to act. 
uh, but they do react as well to what the citizens uh, want. And so through interviews like this, uh, through conversations uh, that uh, my office has with the public, the public getting a better understanding will hopefully encourage our legislators to do the right thing to make sure that business that's being conducted on their behalf is done uh, properly. This is a bit of an oblique question, so feel free to do with it what you will. But are, is there any concern, and I'm not saying it's happening, but in this case, you have a minister facing allegations. I don't see much motivation in her part to make changes or do anything that might put herself further in trouble or in the hot seat, which, which presents a troubling situation. Would you agree or no? Well, uh, my hope would be that any government would not want to uh, be seen to, to have set up a system which essentially... Um, does not assure the public that uh, the public's business is being done properly. And so my hope is that this will uh, further motivate government to undertake the reforms of the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act that uh, have been called for, not just by my office, by the way, uh, many civil society groups, the legislators themselves who have reviewed the legislation uh, in the last number of years have made a call for several reforms. And uh, so... So again, this uh, today is uh, is a very good example of why that reform is necessary, and my hope is that government, along with uh, the entire legislature, will act on this matter. Um, hopefully, in the fall sitting. I guess my last question is: Do you have any meetings scheduled uh, to take this issue up, uh, be it with the minister or anyone else in government, uh, in the immediate future? Uh, I do. In fact, just in the process of uh, scheduling another meeting uh, with the minister uh, in the coming weeks. Excellent. Uh, we'll keep track of that and uh, talk to you hopefully in, in, uh, about some potential changes down the road. Michael, thanks so much for taking some time. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. You too, Shane. Bye now. That was BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael McAvoy. Obviously a little frustrated about uh, the situation swirling around Citizen Services Minister Ginny Sims. Well, the Prime Minister is in town. We're going to find out why next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in town. It's going to be the second time in the last two or three months, I think. And he's here because the Liberal Party's holding their nomination. And the man who will be acclaimed this evening is sitting across from me in studio. Welcome, Terry Lake. Great to be here, uh, Shane. And, uh, yeah, excited for today, for sure. Nerves? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself, this is the Prime Minister of Canada that's coming, <laughs> you know, to uh, be uh, with our team today. And uh, uh, it's it's very humbling, for sure. But I think it denotes the importance that uh, this Prime Minister and this, this uh, party attaches to the interior of B.C., uh, that really hasn't had a strong voice in Ottawa. You know, as, a, as an area of the province, we haven't been that well represented, at, you know, with any government uh, in Ottawa for decades, really, since Len Marchand. So I'm excited that we have this opportunity to really speak up for the interior of British Columbia. You've wrestled with this decision for a bunch of months now, weighing the pros and the cons. Tonight, it becomes official. You're going to be the candidate, and to some degree, it's going to be game on when you wake up tomorrow morning, leading into the fall election. Uh, your thought on, on what sort of after the festivities tonight and, and now you're the guy, what's what's step number one starting tomorrow? Well, we've already started. You know, we've created, a, you know, a core of a campaign team and, uh, you know, the uh, Electoral District Association is well organized. The party has provided great support. So I'm actually feeling really confident in the level of sophistication of our team and our organization. I think in the past, this area hasn't always had that level of support. 
uh, but I think the party understands the importance of this riding and others like Stephen Fear, who's the MP for Kelowna, uh, Cindy Durkatz running in the North Okanagan, Connie Denesiuk in the South Okanagan. You know, there's strong teams in all of these interior ridings, so we are getting that attention. And so I don't feel, you know, that we are in this alone. I really feel like we're part of a bigger team. Pro and con, uh, I, can, I think I can say with a fair degree of certainty, the Liberals never run anybody in this riding with your name recognition. Um, Steve Powery ran the last time. He got uh, 21,000 votes, to some degree riding the Trudeau wave that swept across Canada. There's some evidence that that wave isn't going to be quite as dynamic this time. The Prime Minister's, you know, taken some heat and some bad media. Uh, the brand is looking a little beaten up. Are, are you worried about that or no? Well, I think everyone understands that governing is difficult and anytime a government comes into power I, I remember the best two weeks that i ever had in politics was the two weeks be by uh, in between the election for mayor and actually running your first council meeting you know <laughs> everywhere you went you were the new mayor and everyone was really excited yeah and then as soon as you started making decisions uh the criticism started to come which is absolutely understandable so justin trudeau came uh was elected as prime minister and the liberal party got a lot of seats on you know a, a wave of optimism and then of course the reality of governing particularly when you're dealing with the global situation that we have with our neighbors to the south and what's going on in europe uh, and uh, you know the the sort of problems we've had with china yeah. these are difficult situations to deal with and not everyone is going to agree with the approach but i think people recognize that governing is hard but you have to look at okay what are your choices you go with the Liberal Party that has uh, been in command of an economy that's doing really well, lowest unemployment in 40 years, taking action on climate change, reducing the income gap, lifting people out of poverty, uh, or do you go with someone that has not even outlined a, a plan for climate change that in many ways wants to take us backwards rather than forwards? Uh, and then, you know, on the NDP side, uh, with Jagmeet Singh, we are seeing some, some strength, I think, since he's been in the House of Commons. Uh, but still some, some weakness across the country there. And so I think for people, they have to ask themselves, what is the best choice for Canada? And I truly believe that uh, the Liberal Party is that choice. On the finance side, the two points you raise there. On the finance side, the Liberals are also running a huge deficit uh, with the goal of 2040, possibly. And I know you are concerned about that. Uh, the other thing on climate change, and I hear you and I understand you, but my my concern is that that's not an issue that grabs people. As, as important as you or I may think it is, I'm not sure that, that people are going to march to the polls for that. So on those two yeah. things, I mean, there's, there's, there's a negative and a positive there. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that has been the theme for many years, that, you know, people understand the, the concern about climate change, but they don't feel impacted. I think that's changed. You know, when you think about, I mean, right now they're dealing with a rank six fire in Alberta. Yeah. It is May. We've already had, uh, you know, wildfires around uh, us here in Kamloops. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've been living and working in central Canada where we've had 100-year floods every two years, and we've had tornadoes rip apart communities. I think people are impacted uh, on, in a personal way by climate change, and I do think it is a motivator for people. Uh, so I, 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 I do think that people will vote on that issue. In terms of the economy, and you say huge deficit, that has to be put into perspective. As a percentage of GDP, it is very small, smallest in the G7. Uh, should we be balancing the budget? Yes, I do believe we need a plan to balance the budget. I am, I'm used to governments that do that. <laughs> I, I think it's the way you run your household. It's the way you should run governments. Uh, you know, investing in communities and, and having debt on the capital side is one thing. On the operating side, 
I think the goal should always be, on average, to balance your budgets. And you know, the goal is to do that. It's uh, it's the question of when and 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 what do you. Uh, give up in order to get there, and I think these are important conversations to have. As far as the strategy for the riding, uh, sort of in the past, it's been a tug of war between the NDP and the Conservatives. The NDP held this riding for a little while. Uh, the Conservatives have held it for the last, you know, three or four election cycles. Um, the NDP have tabled or put, in, and this is no disrespect to, to Gina Myhill Jones, but they've tabled somebody who is a political novice, as opposed to Bill Sundu, who had some notoriety here. Um, from your perspective, is that does that benefit you if they put somebody in the field that doesn't have sort of that super name recognition? Does it make it a better race for you, a better chance for you, or no? Uh, well, to be completely honest, yes, I think it does, uh, because you know we have people who vote in what is termed a progressive way, you know, and, and I, I don't really like that term because I think conservatives can be progressive as well. For sure. Um, but if you are sort of uh, from the middle right to the middle left, uh, you tend to vote liberal or NDP. So if you're not voting NDP because the candidate you don't perceive as strong, perhaps some of that vote will come over. But I am not taking that for granted at all because we've seen uh, campaigns actually matter. And yeah. and I don't know Gina, but I, I, I you know I, I I'm going to presume that she's going to put up a very strong campaign. The the NDP have always been very well organized. They have lots of volunteers and and people that are put up uh, to to help with their campaign. So I'm not going to take that for granted whatsoever. Do you see? I mean, the part of the thing about the NDP is they usually have a core, and I guess to some degree every party does a core vote. Do you see some of the NDP vote potentially being in flux if there's some uncertainty about fielding a novice or, or maybe there's not some certainty in, in Jagmeet Singh who uh, has had <laughs> some interesting issues, as had the Prime Minister lately? Well, as you said, there are people that will vote NDP no matter what. And so that base, will, I think, will stay with the NDP. But I think you will see some people who, you know, are... Um, typically NDP supporters may move to a Green candidate. They move, may move... Uh, to me, um, but I think that depends on the message that we are delivering uh, throughout the campaign, and um, you you cannot take any voter for granted. You have to work hard. You know, I barely won the 2009 election as a BC Liberal. Yeah. You know, people didn't think I would win, and we won by about 550 votes. That was because we worked really hard and connected with people. And you know, the next time it was a 3,500 uh, vote gap, and. So I, I think it really does matter what you say and how you act in the campaign, and, and um, people need to be convinced, as they should be. Nothing should be taken for granted. Uh, I know you and Kathy get along. I know, I want you to credit, Kathy McLeod has, has struck a line on this, some of the more divisive areas of politics. She, she wants to see uh, more, you know, uh, coherent and intelligent lines of dialogue as opposed to some of the stuff, the yellow and all the polarization we're seeing. You're going to get it. There's going to be a reaction tonight. I don't know if it's going to be the same as when the Prime Minister was in town last time, but you're about to wade into this ugly pool, that, or this pool that can turn ugly, uh, with some of the climate that's out there. Uh, are you concerned about that, as far as, you know, getting into the campaign now? Or? Well, I'm always concerned when extreme views come to the fore, because I don't think that is the mainstream sort of approach that Canadians generally take. Um, but there seems to be more freedom with social media and the sort of anonymity of of uh, groupthink and uh, and the social media platforms that that are available to have the worst in people come out in some cases. I think we are absolutely so lucky to be in a country where you can have different opinions. Yep. And we can express those opinions respectfully. 
I lose respect for people that um, are strident, that are, you know, tossing around terms like traitor. Uh, you know, Andrew Scheer isn't a traitor, Jagmeet Singh isn't a traitor, uh, and Justin Trudeau certainly is not a traitor. If you disagree with the, the policy, let's talk about those policies. Yeah. Let's leave the personal stuff out of it, and let's leave the extreme views where they belong, which is, you know, in someone's basement somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, we're out of time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Shane. Terry Lake, who is going to be the Kamloops Thompson Caribou member, uh, candidate for the Liberal Party tonight, ahead of this fall's federal election, and things are going to get very interesting. Uh, my thanks to my guest today, and that brings to an end the Woodford Show. See you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.